Ephesians chapter 4, verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him in accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. You were taught, with regard to your former way of life, to put off your old self, which is being corrupted by its deceitful desires, to be made new in the attitude of your minds and to put on the new self, created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, each of you must put off falsehood and speak truthfully to your neighbour, for we are all members of one body. In your anger, do not sin. Do not let the sun go down while you are still angry. And do not give the devil a foothold. Anyone who has been stealing must steal no longer, but must work doing something useful with their own hands, that they may have something to share with those in need. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage and anger, brawling and slander, along with every form of malice. Be kind and compassionate to one another, forgiving each other, just as in Christ God forgave you. When I was growing up, my childhood was haunted by these images. Everywhere I looked, I was being told by my culture, my government, that littering was bad. Uh, There was a right thing to do, and I should do it. Uh, Perhaps there were simpler times when you could appeal to a person's sense of what was the right thing to do, Um, but perhaps it didn't work, because now we need to use slightly different tactics to get people to do the right thing. Not quite such a gentle message, is it? Uh, People generally don't like being called tossers, as I've discovered on a few occasions, speaking to smokers, disposing of their butts, or rather not. Uh, Not a recommended uh, avenue to take, I have to say. Uh, The question is, do these sorts of campaigns really change anybody's behaviour? Can we rely on people to simply do the right thing? Well, let me ask you another question. Can we even say why putting rubbish in the bin is the right thing to do? Why, after I finish my coffee or finish my cigarette, do I need to go several metres out of my way to dispose of that rubbish in a bin? And who are you to tell me that that's what I need to do? See, what the right thing is has become even less clear in our culture, I think, over the last 40 years, certainly more in contention. There's been a thing called postmodernism, which has taken hold in our culture. And more and more so, people's worldviews have little or no space for God, and so just about everything in our culture has become relative. And what I mean by that is that there are not really any absolutes, not really any absolute truths, certainly not any absolute morals. Truth rests with each individual person who must be guided by their own inner moral compass. And so the definition of what is right and wrong is pretty murky. 
morality, we're told by many, is just a, a social construct, uh, perhaps a, a byproduct of our evolutionary biology that's enabled our species to flourish and get along. But because of all of that, we've now got something of a moral dilemma. We want morality to be relative, but we don't actually want to live like that. See, we might all be in agreement that littering is bad, but is it necessarily wrong just because the majority of us agree that that's the case? I mean, the numbers don't always help us out, do they? A majority of people in Germany during the Second World War were fully in support of what the Nazi regime was doing. Perhaps we can agree that the majority doesn't always get this right. Forget about littering and the Nazis for a moment. Let me give you another example. Gender equality. Equal rights for men and women. I think we'd all agree that that's a good thing. But what's our basis for saying so? There are cultures in the world, like Saudi Arabia, where women do not have equal rights. And so can arrogant Westerners like me have the right to tell people in that nation how women should be treated? See, once you decide that values and morals are intuitive, social constructs perhaps that we create for ourselves, you lose the right to tell other people what is right, what is wrong, what they ought to do. There are some secular writers who are prepared to admit this problem. Uh, what happens when you remove God from the picture? Uh, there's a, a well-known uh, kind of modern philosopher named Julian Baggini, and he writes, in the atheist universe, morality can be rejected. He's not saying it necessarily has to be, but the point is, it can be. Now, to be honest, there are plenty of secular thinkers who don't concede that point. Um, Mari Ruti is a professor at the University of Toronto, and she writes this. Although I believe that values are socially constructed rather than God-given, I do not believe that gender inequality is any more defensible than racial inequality. Now, have a look at what she says there, and I wonder if you can see the hole in the argument. She wants to say, firstly, that values are socially constructed. They're just what we invent for ourselves. But she then also wants to insist that there are some moral absolutes, like racial inequality being bad, gender inequality being a bad thing. And in that way, she's quite happy to impose her Western social construction onto others. She says there are these universal sort of moral norms that she wants to say exist. But there's not really any reason for that. It's really just her conviction that those things are right and other people are wrong. In theory, most people would say that they want morality to be a relative thing, that other people can't impose their values upon them, that each person can decide for themselves what is right and wrong. But that doesn't stop any of us having very strong opinions about what we think is right. And it stops very few of us seeking to impose those views upon others, depending on the context. But the problem is, when we erase God, we can't help but erase our most stable basis for morality itself. The great Russian writer, Dostoevsky, famously wrote, Without God and the future life, everything is permitted. One can do anything. 
His classic novel, Crime and Punishment, don't know how many of you have read it, but it's a very lengthy but brilliant exposition of the damage that we do to ourselves and to those around us when we try and live without morality, outside of any moral bounds, without accountability. But to have absolutes, you do really need a reference point outside of ourselves, something that's deeper than our own opinions, our own feelings, an external moral source. For Christians, that source is God, our all-powerful, all-knowing creator, a God who is love, good and just. And we take our cues from him. Now, none of this is to say that people who may be atheists or, or agnostics are, are people that are without morals, without values, I and mean, clearly that is not the case. Most people have a very strong set of values, strong convictions about what is right and what is wrong. People might refer to the way that they were raised, the values that were instilled in them by others, parents. Many people have very clear and guiding moral principles that they live by. I don't think that should surprise us. Christianity says that that shouldn't surprise us for at least a couple of reasons. Firstly, the idea of the common grace of God. And secondly, the way that God has made us. See, there's this thing that our theologians call the common grace of God. And one of the implications of it is that God in his kindness to us restrains the effects of sin in our world. Or to put it another way, he doesn't allow us to be as bad as we might otherwise be. It's a common grace that God extends to all of us in our world. But the other reason I think it shouldn't surprise us that people are fundamentally moral is because, well, that's the way God made us. The very opening chapters of the Bible explain that God made us in his image. Now, those opening chapters also describe the fall in the Garden of Eden. It explains that that image has been tarnished, has been corrupted in many ways, but it's not gone. We all still bear the image of our maker. And that's why we all have this innate and powerful sense of what is good, that there is something that is right. People might call it our conscience. We can suppress it and ignore it, but it's there. Now, of course, we shouldn't trust our hearts inherently or absolutely because our moral compass has become a bit warped because of sin. But all the same, humanity is still capable of great acts of compassion and kindness and courage and love. And don't we all love justice? We all crave what is right when it comes to justice, especially if we're the ones that have been wronged. We all want justice if we're the victim. We want our community to acknowledge that. We want our society to bring a perpetrator to account. We want our hurt and our loss acknowledged. It's vital to our sense of worth, our ability to heal. And in all these ways, we carry the marks of people who bear the image of God. And so it shouldn't surprise us when we see that expressed in our world, either individually or, or collectively as a society. 
I think one of the sad, more recent developments for our culture is how people who have a, well, let's call it a deep faith, uh, are somehow now more feared than those who have none. So much so we saw an example of that this very week, did we not? Where a man who professes to love Jesus and take the Bible seriously is declared to be unfit to be the CEO of a football team. Our public spaces are becoming increasingly hostile to anyone with deep religious convictions. Now, as Christians, it's only fair to admit that morality is a problem for people of faith too. Apart from all the hypocrisy that we see coming from Christians themselves, religious people have proclaimed themselves far too often to be the custodians of divinely sanctioned moral truth and use that as a weapon against others to oppress, to be abusive towards others, to use it to exert power. Now, I'd want to say that whenever that's been done in the name of Jesus, it's a gross violation of the things that he taught and stood for, but it's been done nonetheless. Moral kind of self-righteousness can be a fearful thing in the hands of the religious zealot. But I'd say we should be no less concerned about where secular, <clears throat> pardon me, humanism is taking us, a view that really has no moral absolutes, no genuine bedrock for telling anyone what they are or are not allowed to do. Because when we take away God, we take away the ought. You get rid of the should. You erode the basis for moral absolutes. We claim things that are universal, self-evident truths, like racial inequality and uh, gender equality, or even something like the obligation that we ought to have to care for the poor and the vulnerable, things like the sanctity of human life. But in many ways, these are things we're trading on. They're kind of borrowed capital, I think, from our Christian heritage. And how long they're going to hold up after we've taken God away? Well, I guess we'll see. In our world, the reason that we should care for other people often seems to come back to this notion that, well, you, you're charitable, you show love and kindness to other people because it, it makes you feel good about yourself. You should be generous, you should be altruistic because of how it makes you feel. It's a pretty flimsy basis for morality, isn't it? What if it doesn't make you feel good? What if you just don't care? Christianity insists that we treat other people with dignity and with respect. It gives an inherent and equal value to each person as an image bearer of God. In that way, we don't need to deny people's individual rights, but we do want to insist that those rights come with responsibilities, with obligations towards others. Most powerfully and most radically, we believe that human life and community works best when others consider other people even ahead of themselves, that we are called to be people who serve others, who care for the marginalised, for those without power. Why do we do it? Well, because we have a God who is like that. We have a God who is moral, who is good and just. 
And we have a God who cares that we do what is right and good and just. In the reading that we had from Ephesians earlier, we saw a list of all of these moral imperatives of what we should and should not do. Talk of uh, honesty uh, and having a good work ethic and how we speak to other people. All of these, this moral code, these virtues that are put before us. But what was the inspiration for it all? And if you caught it right at the end, but at Ephesians chapter 5, it goes this way. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. God is held up to us as our example to follow. Our lives ought to reflect the very nature and character of God. A character that I think is most clearly revealed to us through the gospel message itself. See, in the gospel we see God reach out to us in merciful love. We see God himself prepared to suffer, prepared to sacrifice in order to win our salvation, in order to win us back. The gospel message exposes both how broken we are, how in need of God's forgiveness, how immoral we can be, but it also speaks of our great value to God, how precious we are to him. And this picture becomes the engine room for our own morality. As we're humbled by it, as we recognise our own need of forgiveness, you can't come to Jesus without having to park your self-righteousness at the door as you humbly accept his forgiveness. And that in and of itself begins to transform us as God reshapes our hearts, as we're impacted by his gracious love towards us, as the very spirit of God is at work within us to shape and change our attitudes and even our behaviour. And what should all that look like? Well, Jesus was happy to give us a bit of a summary. He said, love your neighbour as yourself. That's a pretty good rule of thumb. But one picture that we see over and over again in the Bible too is God's particular concern for the poor and for those in need. So there's a couple of verses from the Old Testament for you. From Psalm 140, I know that the Lord secures justice for the poor and upholds the cause of the needy. And Deuteronomy 24 is a part of the law of God. God instructs his people to not deprive the alien or fatherless of justice or to take the cloak of a widow as a pledge. In the New Testament, we see this same concern expressed. Religion that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself from being polluted by the world. Just a small sample of many passages that talk about this particular concern that God has for the poor, for the fatherless, for the widow. These are the people who are most vulnerable. God says he cares deeply for them, is concerned for them. Concerned that they're not denied justice in this world. See, all people have been made in the image of God. And because of that, they have an intrinsic value and an intrinsic worth. They all deserve to be treated with dignity. They all deserve a measure of justice. 
It's a sad truth that in our world, justice tends to be denied to those who don't have the money, the connections, the power. People without these things do get exploited. But we're not, for our part, to turn a blind eye to that. We're certainly not to be partners with others in that. For us, our faith in God is not something which is just a personal, internal thing. Something for the head and the soul, but not for the hands. When Jesus told the story of the Good Samaritan, it was a demand that we be people who love, who love our neighbour sacrificially, who love our neighbour without limits, with love that's radical and costly and practical. Because that's the way God has loved us. And he calls upon us to show that same love to others. In that way, to be imitators of him, to follow his example. Our morality, our sense of what is right and wrong, is going to be shaped and governed by our understanding of who God is and who he created us to be. I don't think pure reason would ever tell you to love your enemies and to pray for those who persecute you. Reason won't always compel you to love others sacrificially. The source of true morality, the source of genuine human rights, of justice, has to come from beyond ourselves. And that is what the God of the Bible, the Lord Jesus Christ, gives us. For our part, when we look to God to teach us what is right from what is wrong, It enables us to be his people in this world, to be the salt and the light that he called us to be. And when we seek to live lives that honour God, when we seek to do what is right, firstly in God's eyes, it empowers us to go beyond what is the fickle and very flimsy morality of a self-interested world. So let's allow the gospel to continue to teach us, to guide us, and to empower us to love others as God has loved us, that the world might see his love in us.